Thank you for downloading this podcast from Pardes, North America. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Tova Leah Nachmani on Parashat Bayera. For the latest episode of Pardes from Jerusalem, please visit elmod.pardes.org. And now, here is Tova Leah Nachmani. Three Faces of the Akedah, Problematic or Profound? Hundreds of commentaries have asked hard questions over the ages about the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, with very little agreement about the mysteriousness of the dramatic request. Why would Abraham's tenth and final test be to sacrifice his son? That request, on God's part, meant going back on all the promises God made to Abraham, the promises of becoming a great nation and inheriting the land of Israel, and it would be a total reneging of the promise of becoming a blessing or a catalyst for social change in the polytheistic and cruel world that surrounded him. Why would God put Abraham and his son Yitzchak and Sarah through such a disturbing and excruciating test? My friend and colleague at Pardes tried to dissuade me from choosing Akedah for this podcast, claiming it was utterly problematic and unpopular for modern ears. But I decided to take the challenge nevertheless and to suggest three ways I find the test of the Akedah historically meaningful and also still reverberating with relevance in the 21st century. First, historically. Historically, there may be good reason for this trial. There is evidence in the Torah, as well as modern archaeological evidence, that the idolatrous practice of molech worship, when people would sacrifice their children uh, to the, through, by putting them through fire to this, the god called molech, this kind of worship was widespread in the ancient Near East from the time preceding Abraham and all the way up to the Talmudic times in the land of Israel. In the Talmud, it is recorded that smoke would rise from the valley of Ben Hinnom, Gay Ben Hinnom is what it's called, just outside modern Jerusalem's old city walls, where it is horrifying to imagine, but Jews were taking part in wild pagan celebrations at night, perhaps with mind-altering drugs of some sort, and with loud drumming to encourage ecstatic child sacrifice of passing children through fire to the ancient pagan god of Molech. Rashi on Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 31 wrote that exceedingly loud drumming was used to drown out the cries of the children who were being sacrificed. If this is the reason for the Akedah story where God tells Abraham to sacrifice his beloved son for no other reason than to be told by an angel of God to drop the knife, to not lay a hand on his son as a sacrifice to God, it makes sense in the time frame of Abraham and his earliest descendants. It makes a lot of sense. The second reading is the Pshat reading or contextual reading of the Akedah and it paints a problematic picture of an enthusiastic Avraham who overrides his parental and even human instincts to do the will of God. Sounds a little bit reminiscent of the Molech enthusiasm. In an act of complete devotion, like an infatuated lover who can think of nothing other than following the bidding of his or her beloved, even if it leads them to do something which is immoral or cruel, Avraham wakes up in the, early in the morning by Yashkem Avraham Baboker to fill to fulfill God's command. In the three verses preparing for the Akedah, verses 3 to 5, the Torah uses 12 verbs in quick succession. 
Avram woke up early, saddled his donkey, took his lad, split the wood, got up, set off, lifted up his eyes, and saw the place. I'll read it in Hebrew. When Abraham arrives, he says to the lads, You sit here, we will go, we will worship, and we will return. And then in verses 9 to 11, when Abraham is about to sacrifice his son, there are seven more verbs in quick succession. He came, he built the altar and prepared the wood and tied his son and placed him on the altar and stretched forth his hands and took the knife. In Hebrew, the Torah's exaggerated quantity of verbs portrays Abraham as driven and unflinching in his mission, almost like a madman. Throughout the ages, many artists, poets, and writers, in fact, call Abraham a madman and critique Abraham's heartless behavior, agreeing for agreeing to such a cruel request. Intuitively, after a first reading, we can understand why Abraham, um, why Abraham's showing an enthusiastic obedience to an unquestionably unethical request sounds mad. But I think there's also a deeply spiritual message and a profound value in considering the opposite reading, that Abraham was, uh, Abraham was not mad. He was dedicated to serving God, not a God, but the God, the one God, even when it included something painful and incomprehensible in his eyes. Though he is an elderly man by now, Abraham climbs up to the mountain, Mount Moriah, builds the altar himself, and arranges the wood. He binds Yitzchak and places him on the altar upon the wood. Avram does not look back or even forward at what he is about to lose. He only looks up, as it were, to do the will of God. Even though his wife Sarah will be devastated and his entire future is about to be destroyed, Abraham is entirely committed to serving God the way that God asked him to be served. Abraham is so fully, fully committed to his mission that the angel of God has to call him twice to get his attention, to stop him before he wields the knife which is already in his hand. And in verse 11, we hear the voice of the, of the angel, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham says, Hineni. Let's reel back to touch base with reality here. Why are we praising Abraham for being prepared to do such a despicable act in the name of God? Our tradition praises Abraham left, right, and center, and says that in the merit of Abraham, the entire Jewish people will be forgiven on Rosh Hashanah before we um, blow the shofar. There's songs that are sung and, and, and prayers about remembering remembering the dedication of Abraham. And why are we praising Abraham? Why does Abraham not question God or at least show his distress as he did when Sarah asked that Ishmael and Hagar be sent away? Why does Abraham not beg to reverse God's request when he's asked to sacrifice Isaac as he does with the announcement to destroy stone? Both of those stories in our Torah portion 
which we love to quote as, an, as a nation committed to acting with absolute loving kindness, both of those stories make us expect to hear Avraham resist. A person might read these, the lack of his resisting, as signs of Avraham's terrible insensitivity, as a lesson in how not to act. Ramban, for example, in Lech Lecha, chapter 12, when Avraham leaves the land of Canaan for Egypt, he criticizes Avraham extensively. So our forefathers and foremothers are not whitewashed or exempt from critique in our own tradition. My friend and colleague, Nahama Goldman Barash, claims in her Pardes podcast about the Akedah, which I recommend, that God never spoke to Avraham again after the Akedah, which signifies a deep rift in their, in their relationship, meaning Avraham failed. He failed the test because he should have refused God's request. But for this reason, and for additional reasons as well, I want to claim the opposite, saying that Avraham had passed every test he needed to pass, and he grew along the way, and he evolved. And God only speaks to Abraham when Abraham needs explicit guiding. The fact that God doesn't speak to him anymore doesn't mean that they're not on speaking terms, that God was disappointed in Abraham. Abraham has actually shown that in his maturity, after a lifetime of struggles, he has understood what God desires of him in this world. Abraham is a person of deep sensitivity and chesed, caring for his orphan nephew Lot and risking his own life to save Lot from captivity in a regional war in chapter 14 in Bereshit and welcoming guests, as we know that he does in this week's Torah portion. And the Torah is a Torah of, of life. Etz chayim. Etz chayim hi ba. All of her paths are paths of peace. Or are they? The Akedah the test not only ends with praise from the angel of God, but also with a promise, with an oath redoubling God's commitment to the covenant with Abraham and promising him seed as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore and the ability to inherit and conquer the land of Canaan from their enemies and the promise to become a catalyst for ethical change even when that change takes centuries. So why is Abraham rewarded? Yes, for his willingness to sacrifice his son. It's not a failure. Abraham's behavior was actually praised by the angel of God. In verse 16, the angel says, What has now been understood as never before, now I understand, is that Avraham is Yereshamayim. He's demonstrated the highest degree of misirut nefesh, of dedication, of commitment, and willingness to risk and even sacrifice what he loved most because he trusted the word of God. God never intended for Avraham to go through with the Akedah, as we all know. But this reading may be preparing the descendants of Avraham for the excruciatingly dark times in human history where real-life sacrifice would be called for. In our modern times, in the state of Israel, where I live, no parent chooses to sacrifice their child to be injured or killed in a war. Every young person who goes to the army here in Israel chooses their own path, and they choose the degree of risk that's going to be involved in their service whether to be trained in combat or in a hundred other acts of service which are far from the front lines. When three of my children chose to risk their lives for the safety of the future of our country and its citizens, Jewish and non-Jewish citizens, like thousands of other young people who do this every single day in the IDF, I thank God that there are people like them who are doing this. I admire their commitment, their dedication, and their loyalty to the we which outweighs the me. This is what Abraham did 
when he went to rescue Lot out of captivity. But here in our story, Abraham is performing an, an even higher level, a new level of, mor of moral behavior, or maybe just an additional a dimension of moral behavior, which is loyalty and, t loyalty and trust in the authority of God as an ethical God. In verse 9 of our story, Avram finally understands that he's wrong in how he understood the request of God. He stretches, stretches out his hand, lishchotet bano, to slaughter his son. But God didn't ask for that. In verse 2, in the very, very beginning of the story, God asks Avram to bring his beloved son up with him to perform an offering, which can mean bring him up as an offering. There's an ambiguity in the way that it can be read. But it can also mean for an offering, meaning to, to join Avraham, to give an offering. The meat from an ola sacrifice, we learn in the book of Vaikra, is entirely for God. Neither the Kohanim nor the one sacrificing derive any benefit from the animal. No one eats. The ola is entirely for God, not because God needs the food, of course, but because humans need to sometimes take themselves, ourselves, out of the center of our universe in our unending thirsty quest for personal gain. Sometimes we need to just give in order to give, or to do an act of service for the sake of someone else to strengthen that relationship. The Ola sacrifice is not about making amends, neither is it about giving thanks. It is the daily sacrifice brought on behalf of the Jewish people in the Beit HaMikdash in the temple, morning and evening, because we are in an ongoing relationship with God. It is a continual showing up a continual hineni. Here we are. We feel comfortable when we hear about people disagreeing with God, at least a part days. I think that people feel very comfortable with this, when people are arguing with God and even ignoring God. But there's another element of relationship, and that is the element of commitment, of obeying God. Yep, not very popular to modern ears. And not just obeying God, not just checking off the mitzvah boxes. Prayer did that. Blessing did that today. Tzedakah did that today. No, Avraham is, what we learn from Avraham here is that he's dis demonstrating for his descendants two things. First and foremost, that what makes a behavior ethical is God's authority to determine it as ethical. Correct, God never said that sacrificing a child is ethical. But if God asked Avraham to do it, Avraham trusted God. That's number one. And... The other thing that Avraham is demonstrating is his ability to carry out God's will with enthusiasm. And that's a question that I want to ask. Do we just do whatever it is that we choose to do or feel obligated to do because it become, becomes a part of our life, it's normal, it's natural, and there is something beautiful to that also. To what extent do we carry out the mitzvot that we, that we do do sort of in a um, detached sense, and to what extent do we carry them out with enthusiasm, with simcha, with hitlavut, with dvekut. Rav Kook asks a painful question, why is it that we do lots of things with enthusiasm, but we serve God with a dullness of spirit? Rav Kook would say that this is one of the most important lessons of the Akedah. Most human beings believe in the value of freedom of speech, freedom of movement, fairness, and equal opportunity. But the Torah is teaching that there is an equally important value and that is the humility to receive both commands and also limitations, what to do and what not to do from our living tradition. Being alive is a dynamic enterprise 
calling us to weigh the values of insisting upon individual freedom and also choosing a framework of authority. Those two things often come in conflict with each other. Authority which directs our freedom and helps us to set boundaries of behavior. It's important for us to think about what it is that we do during our day with enthusiasm. What do we get excited about? And to what extent can we transfer some of that enthusiasm to our performance of a mitzvah? One example of this from my own experience, in one Rosh Chodesh morning, we were singing Hallel or Pardes, and I looked over at a student who was, uh, who was praying very close to, next, almost next to me, um, a beginner student who really had no background in Jewish tradition and didn't know all the words to the songs, but she was singing with a beautiful, beautiful smile on her face, a smile that said, Hineni, I am so happy to be here right now in this moment. And I took from her that smile. And every time I, I try, when I say Birkat Amazon, when I, when I do Tefillah, when I sing Hallel, I really try to, to focus on putting a smile on my face before I begin. And if I catch myself in the middle, right, feeling a dullness of spirit, I try to bring that smile back. And I take a, take a break and I put the smile back. And I really try to focus on, uh, on doing what I'm trying, what I am, whatever means fine performing to try to do it with enthusiasm, with simcha. The third aspect of the Akedah that I want to address is the following. Our tradition over hundreds and hundreds of years has been extolling Abraham's dedication to the Word of God, as I just spoke about, even when the sacrifice is more than a normal person can bear. But where is Abraham's heart? Where is his human sensitivity? Did Abraham really go to the Akedah without struggle, without anguish, without any internal resistance to do away with his only son who he loved and through whom the fulfillment of God's covenant with him to become a great nation and to inherit the promised land would be fulfilled? Where the Torah is silent, the Midrash speaks. Midrash Bereshit Rabbah 56.8 returns Abraham's passionate sensitivity to the story. In the moments when Abraham stretches forth his hand to take the knife, the Midrash says tears of fatherly compassion were spilling from his eyes, falling into the open eyes of Yitzchak. Yet simultaneously, Avraham's heart was joyous to be able to do the will of his Creator. How could it be that the tears are streaming down his face and simultaneously his heart was joyous? How could it be? Midrash Tanchuma takes a similar approach using different imagery. He says the following, that Avram's heart was weeping, yet his mouth said, Hineni, here I am. His heart was crying, but an inner voice guided his mouth to utter Hineni. I am fully present to the calling. My weeping heart is one inner voice, expressed with tears of longing or compassion. My mouth, says, my mouth saying Hineni is another voice. It is the joyousness that I feel when I am living with integrity when I'm living what I believe in. The inner voices guiding me in my life sometimes disagree. The head and the heart, they actually often disagree. They have an ongoing machloket. And you know what? Sometimes they are both right. The reason why this speaks to me is that some of the most conflicted, painstaking, and existentially difficult moments in my life and difficult decisions have also been joined with and perhaps even rewarded with a kind of happiness I cannot even describe give you two examples. One, leaving my family to make Aliyah was heartbreaking for my family, especially for my mother. 
זיכרונה לברכה, may she, her memory be for a blessing. I was her only daughter and youngest child. My making Aliyah brought about a crisis in our relationship. And I was happier than I had ever been after coming to Israel, but she was miserable. My heart said yes, my head said yes, but my heart knew that I, that I had caused her to feel miserable. And we had to figure out some kind of a win-win situation. At first, I felt resentful of how upset she was. But once I allowed myself to feel her pain, I made it a priority. Before there were computers and cell phones, this is many years ago, I made it a priority to send a short letter every week to my parents with some artwork from one of my young children. My mother always cherished that collection of letters, which she saved in a shoebox and which repaired and mended our broken relationship. When she passed away, I brought the shoebox of letters with me back to Israel, and it is one of my cherished possessions. Another example um, of an Akedah moment, a moment where my eyes and my heart, my eyes were teary and my heart was joyous, was getting married. Since we were sa- each sacrificing, my husband and I, certain dreams that were necessary in order to make an everlasting bond, I think we both had this feeling on our wedding day. Now, wedding days are not only the happiest days of our lives, they are, but they also often combine, combine teary eyes for what we are giving up. Even when marriage is hard, when our differences become magnified over a particular issue, the commitment is one of the most satisfying of all the choices I've ever made. And it is the one which we, which we look to every day to find win-win solutions for our difficulties. The ultimate win-win for me in marriage, which offsets the sacrifices, the many sacrifices that one makes in marriage, is the lasting commitment we share to our relationship and family, knowing we will always be here for each other. Is there a win-win in our relationship with God? For me, the answer is yes. I did not grow up with Jewish observance, and with each step of the way, I have struggled to listen to my own voice and desires and to be true to my identity. And when I've chosen to sacrifice something that is valuable to me or precious to me or that I deeply desire, I feel the loss without whitewashing what is difficult. And then I strive to connect to the feeling, that feeling of belonging and being part of an enterprise that outlives my individual life, one, one that is eternal. The win-win with God for me It's about the misirut, the dedication to my understanding of what God wants from me and what I can give to others for the sake of the enterprise which attaches my small, short life, here today, gone tomorrow, to the infinite and meaningful Jewish enterprise. It gives me a glimpse of eternity. So is it good to sacrifice? When we sacrifice to avert conflict, or when we don't believe there is a win-win in the situation, that we can find some kind of a win-win in our situation, sacrifice can be draining. It can backfire. It can lead to terrible resentment. When we sacrifice ourselves to bring ourselves closer in a committed relationship, closer with family or with community or tradition or with God, we often feel a sense of joy in our hearts. The word sacrifice, korban, is from the root to come close, karev. Is there something you have sacrificed that enabled you to come closer in a relationship with a person or with Jewish tradition or with God? I recommend re- reading or reading about the book The Righteous Mind by Professor Jonathan Haidt because his five original foundational values that often come into conflict with each other, caring and fairness, loyalty, authority, and sanctity, 
helped me to clarify why the personal lessons of the Akedah which I shared felt so unpopular to my colleague when they felt deeply relevant to me. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of Pardes North America. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Spotify for the latest episode of Pardes from Jerusalem. Tune in next week as Rabbi Michael Emerson discusses Parashat Chaye Sarah. Thanks for listening.